Welcome to Cato Audio for July 2012. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, New Jersey Governor Chris Christie discusses bipartisanship. Kentucky U.S. Senator Rand Paul talks about his father's legacy. James Bacchus values cross-border investment. Author Elizabeth Price Foley delves into the Tea Party's jurisprudence. And Cato's Michael Tanner talks about the welfare state. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. The President of the United States is dropping a lot of bombs in countries that we are not officially at war with on people who we can't name in many cases, some of whom are American citizens and some of whom are mourning people who have been previously killed by bombs dropped by the President of the United States. I'm here talking about the issue of drones, drone strikes and the potential development of drones for use within the United States with Malou Innocent, a foreign policy analyst at the Cato Institute, and Julian Sanchez, a research fellow at the Cato Institute as well. So just to get started, Malou Innocent, what is the appeal? I think it should. some of that should be obvious, but what is the appeal for the president to be using drones in lieu of large numbers of troops overseas in a time of war? Right. Well, counterterrorism officials have come to rely on drones for both surveillance and for precision targeting. And many people have credited drones with putting added pressure on al-Qaeda and also diminishing its ability to operate. That said, you know, even though they're definitely a valuable tool to have in our arsenal, especially compared to, say, you know, man-intensive, you know, missions, they do sort of pose a problem, especially when we look at the intense political blowback that we've been seeing, especially uh, most recently in Yemen. In Yemen, you know, the Obama administration has uh, vastly accelerated the use of drone attacks against al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, AQAP. Despite the increase in the number of drone attacks, we've actually seen AQAP increase in number over the past three years. They've grown from an estimated 300 alleged al-Qaeda militants to now well over 700. Part of the reason is that we're sort of alienating and angering the local tribesmen who we would need to gain support to prevent al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula from growing more powerful. So it's not clear that these strikes, even as they are increasing in Yemen, that they're actually significantly weakening AQAP or stopping its ability to operate. Another sort of problem, as we see in Pakistan, is that over the past several years, uh, we've seen an increased radicalization of the country and an increased instability in that country, partially as a result of the drone attacks that are certainly given the complicity by the Pakistani authorities, but certainly increase anti-American sentiment. And on that note, you know, in 2009, a U.S. drone strike killed the leader of Pakistan's version of the Taliban by Tula Massoud. And many counterterrorism officials thought that this would be great because it would create a leadership vacuum and force all these sort of various factions to begin fighting one another. That happened. But what happened also is that Hakimullah Massoud, Tula Massoud's cousin, assumed power. And while the previous commander was really focused on attacking Pakistani soldiers and Pakistani police, his successor was virulently more anti-American and began aligning his forces with al-Qaeda. So we actually saw more forces pouring over the border and attacking U.S. troops in Afghanistan. So I think the problem is twofold. On the one hand, are we sort of, you know, when we go after, you know, 10 militants and we they're legitimate targets and we create 100 more insurgents, is that an efficacious policy, number one? Number two, if we go after certain commanders and they're quickly replaced by another leader who's 
more extreme and has international ambitions, is this a war without end? So I think we have, you know, very serious ethical and strategic implications that we still have to really grapple with. This is from CNN. As of June 6, drone strikes and airstrikes have killed an estimated 531 to 779 people in Yemen, 509 to 713 of whom were identified by media reports as militants. According to the New America Foundation's data, of these deaths, 99% occurred during Obama's presidency. Julian Sanchez, when we talk about war and the definition of war, Jay Carney, the White House spokesman, has said, well, look, when we're just dropping bombs on a country as we did in Libya, and this was within that context, he said, we're not introducing troops. So it's not consistent with this definition of war that you would need, oh, I don't know, congressional approval in order to go have. Another issue here is that the names of these people, the White House doesn't know, and uh, these people are therefore, in many cases, presumed to be militants. Yeah, there are, uh, you know, a lot of time there's a humorous, almost, in, in a kind of gallows humor, dark sense aspect of some of these stories where you hear uh, officials repeatedly confirming that the targets that were uh, killed were a group of militants, but then they'll say they're not sure who the dead targets are or indeed even what their nationality is. And what's become clear is that in effect, the administration has now taken the position that in the absence of some kind of affirmative proof of innocence, a dead target of military, a male of military age essentially is a presumed militant. This is a way they've been able to keep the formal or official number of innocents or civilians killed in these strikes artificially low. It's a form of juking the stats. And to the extent that these events are taking place in Yemen and Pakistan, once again, we have a situation where we are dropping a lot of bombs in countries we are not at war with. Right. And I think that's sort of an added problem is that, you know, President Obama has really institutionalized the executive branch's ability to not only wage undeclared war in multiple countries, but also to target people for death, including American citizens, without semblance of accountability or transparency or congressional consent. I think part of the reason why is that, you know, Obama officials have said that they have the constitutional authority to go after these militants under the 2001 authorization of the use of military force. You know, that's sort of problematic, though, because not only can we target people who are considered to be elements of al-Qaeda and their affiliated forces, but they also have to present or actually pose an imminent security threat to the United States. And it's not exactly clear that these people that we're killing, if we don't know their names or their nationality, whether or not they posed an imminent threat. You know, these are sort of the so-called signature strikes. And also when we're categorizing all military age males in a strike zone, whether they were legitimate targets. So, you know, I think to Julian's point, you know, we are sort of just sort of making this up as we go along and sort of really fudging exactly uh, how we categorize people. And that is incredibly, incredibly dangerous. And, you know, some people say, well, you know, Anwar Lalaki, the U.S. citizen who was killed in a U.S. drone strike, well, he was a legitimate target or that, you know, President Obama, he's this, you know, enlightened leader. But it goes beyond that. You know, it's not about President Obama or Anwar Lalaki. It's about what a president 50 years from now might do or a president 25 years from now will do. So we're setting the standards now that will affect U.S. policy for the foreseeable future. Uh, this May 29th story from the New York Times by Joe Becker and Scott Shane. Uh, here's a quote. It's a great story, by the way. If you haven't read it, you definitely should. Uh, counterterrorism officials insist this approach is one of simple logic. People in an area of known terrorist activity or found with a top al-Qaeda operative are probably up to no good. Al-Qaeda is an insular, paranoid organization. This is a quote. Innocent neighbors don't hitchhike rides in the back of trucks headed for the border with guns and bombs, said one official who requested anonymity to speak about what is still a classified program. This counting method may partly explain the official claims of extraordinarily low 
collateral deaths. So we have a situation where the president of the United States is dropping a lot of bombs on people uh, that in many cases cannot be identified. So effectively, have, we have guilt by physical proximity. It's a step beyond guilt by association. Now, the odd thing here is that in the past, I think quite reasonably, we've criticized al-Qaeda and the Taliban as groups that hide among civilians. They're not uh, accorded some of the protections under international law or the laws of war because they don't observe themselves uh, certain of these niceties. But you can't criticize these groups for hiding among civilians and then say it's reasonable to assume that anyone in physical proximity to members of these groups must be up to no good. It's got to be one or the other. You can't switch your rationale with your need to justify whatever your action is at a moment. Let's talk about what Eric Holder has said. He gave a speech in which he sort of outlined what he thought were a not exhaustive list of reasons why it's okay for the United States to engage in this kind of activity. Right. And so, uh, you know, part of the problem is that you have in a lot of these cases the illusion of a standard, but as soon as you scratch the surface, you realize it's not really a standard at all. So, again, one of the conditions under which we might attack as a situation in which we have reason to believe that there is an imminent threat originating from a particular target and that it would not be feasible to capture that person. And then you realize, of course, that these feasibility determinations are themselves essentially made by the president. Uh, you realize that the intelligence surrounding what counts as an imminent threat is also something that is substantially subject to interpretation. You know, in most of these cases, it's just not plausible in the least that imminent means an attack is, is now underway or coming tomorrow. And they've been pretty clear about that, that imminent in this sense isn't supposed to mean knowledge of a specific attack, but rather a kind of intent to attack. So these things are really extraordinarily subject to presidential discretion, but we create the illusion of adhering to a standard. And it's become increasingly clear that, again, these are far from the only conditions under which this will occur. David uh, Sanger's new book and New York Times reporting discuss a disturbing practice called signature strikes, where the CIA will essentially develop a set of criteria that are indicative of terrorist or militant activity and then target an encampment or a vehicle convoy that meets these abstract characteristics even if they have no knowledge of the specific persons being targeted. This is in a weird way similar to the approach we've increasingly taken with respect to surveillance. We have, uh, again, these sort of vast data mining capabilities. And so increasingly, instead of looking for particular individuals or particular known phone lines or accounts or facilities, we will look for signatures of suspicious behavior in flagging conversations for review by the NSA. It looks like we have now brought that to the drone attack context as well. There's a supposedly a grim joke circulating the State Department that any time the CIA sees three guys doing jumping jacks, it assumes that it's found a terrorist camp. So it's just a crude deduction, essentially. We're not following up on anything specific to get to the people we know are up to no good. It is just a crude deduction. And again, press reports suggest that the administration was troubled by the laxity of the standards for these and has in some way tried to tighten them up. But again, we have extraordinarily limited information about this when information about drone attacks cast the president as a shining warrior against the forces of terrorism. We have leaks in abundance. But when it comes to the actual legal rationale justifying this and also implicitly 
placing limits around it, well, there's been no public access to that. It's not remotely clear how access to a legal justification, an argument for the constitutionality of this practice and for its legitimacy under international law could in itself pose a security risk. But that is the argument we're seeing. And and so now we're seeing calls for prosecution of some of these leaks, which seems like a bizarre shift in focus to, you know, acts of essentially whistleblowing, although in some cases it may be the former kind of situation where these are leaks that are done with authorization. There seems to be a lot of anger directed at a president that he is being selective in the leaks he's allowing, a lot less focus on the propriety of the program itself. Just to uh, piggyback off what Julian was saying, you know, the, the legal rationales that the Obama administration has been using is um, not only just fungible, but deeply, deeply troubling. You know, Eric Holder had said that the Fifth Amendment guarantees American citizens a due process, not necessarily judicial process. However, the Supreme Court has held that, you know, Americans can challenge their enemy combatant status, you know, by seeking counsel and bringing evidence to a neutral decision maker. And these are the very things that are being denied by the Obama administration when they do target American citizens. So, you know, again, we're sort of, the administration seems to be institutionalizing a process that is very arbitrary and can be sort of tailored to fit the specific needs of a president whenever he's in power. And also to Julian's point regarding, you know, the international aspects, we're entering a stage where we've entwined American exceptionalism into American foreign policy. And I think that's deeply problematic and very troubling when it comes to drone warfare as well, when more than 60 countries now are buying and purchasing surveillance drones. And certainly, you know, we have the technological edge when it comes to weaponized systems. We're sort of leading the way when it comes to development and procurement. But, you know, in terms of what are the legal aspects of this, you know, um, U.S. counterterrorism chief John Brennan has said that um, it is legal under international law to use drone attacks for self-defense. Part of the problem with that is that many countries around the world don't view our use of drones as self-defense. They see it as assassination. So, you know, we're going to be living in a world where dozens and dozens of other countries are going to be using drones. And yet again, we're sort of tailoring the use of drones to fit our own specific standards. And this is, again, going to be very problematic. And if nothing else, we're setting a standard for these countries. Absolutely. Bob McDonnell, the governor of Virginia, said recently, This is from May 30th in Politico that he supports the use of military-style drones to help local police monitor the Commonwealth, saying that their deployment would be, quote, the right thing to do. He argued that the advantage of aerial drones on the battlefield could be applied in the civilian policing context. So what's good for war is good for peace. He says, quote, I think it's great. I think we ought to be using technology to make law enforcement more productive, cut down on manpower, and also more safe. And that's why we use it on the battlefield. So The obvious problem here is that we don't live on the battlefield. We are American citizens with certain inalienable rights. Uh, This is from The Hill from June 13th. Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky introduced the Preserving Freedom from Unwarranted Surveillance Act, which would require the government to get a warrant before using aerial drones to surveil U.S. citizens. Julian? Well, so one of the problems here is that if you look at the major Supreme Court decisions governing aerial surveillance, is two big ones from 1986, Dow Chemical and uh, California versus Cirolo, we've seen that the court has not, not created a kind of blanket warrant exemption for aerial surveillance, but been fairly deferential, not seen the need for a warrant or a, a need to trigger Fourth Amendment scrutiny in cases 
involving aerial surveillance flying through commercial airspace, using technology that one would reasonably expect to find on helicopters and and passenger planes and that sort of thing. Uh, The idea here being if we live in a world where flight is increasingly commonplace, where helicopters and passenger jets fly overhead, normal use of that technology to expose things that might not be visible from the street don't trigger Fourth Amendment privacy interests. So I think it would be difficult to say in, in, in a blanket sense that drones represent something per se or individually different from, let's say, a helicopter. I think the difference comes in when we think about cost and prevalence and pervasiveness, which is to say it may be that just as a practical matter, drones are so much cheaper and able to be fielded in such higher numbers that the practical diminution of the privacy you enjoy in quasi-public spaces like an enclosed backyard is much more radically diminished, even though you can say at some level, well, isn't the technology basically the same in principle? Um, There's actually, I think, an analogy here to the recent Jones GPS case involving GPS tracking of vehicles on public roads. You can say in some sense, well, isn't the monitoring that occurs here fundamentally not different from following someone around on the public streets in a car, which you can do without a warrant? The concern is not in a way that it's more intrusive as such when considered you know, at any moment of the surveillance and isolation, but that factors of cost and of scalability, the ability to do this on a essentially population level scale, create a different balance of interests. I think um, many Americans would say that they have an expectation of privacy in their own homes. The problem now with drones is that some uh, of the sophisticated technology with drones can penetrate through trees and see through walls. I mean, this is something that is incredibly troubling. But also, even if someone is looking through someone's window from an airplane or a helicopter, the visibility would be much different, say, if a a police officer was climbing a tree looking in your window. I think that's sort of the difference in terms of the expectation of privacy. We've also seen a diminution of uh, what qualifies as exigent circumstances. Uh, The case Kentucky v. King essentially allowed the police in some circumstances to create their own exigent circumstances and then kick in the door of somebody's home that where they had smelled marijuana, fearing, of course, that the evidence was about to be destroyed. If we have broad-based surveillance going on with that's extremely sophisticated, there are lots and lots and lots of opportunities for police to make those kinds of claims. And that's absolutely right. And I think uh, Mulu actually brings up an important point with respect to the power of these sensors. Again, the major Supreme Court cases involving aerial surveillance make a point of being actually pretty specific about the heights and the level of uh, magnification technology they're talking about. Because, you know, they're clear that they don't want to say because a certain kind of helicopter flyover might be permissible that super high-powered X-ray satellite surveillance is in the same breath being authorized. So we need to attend to how perhaps subtle changes in the sensitivity of the sensors that are attached to these surveillance drones alter that calculus by going beyond the level of intrusion that someone would expect from things like, for example, commercial aircraft flying overhead. Um, So I think it's important to, on the one hand, not think that drones are a somehow inherently radically different thing and that, you know, you can use a helicopter to fly over the mountains looking for a lost hiker, but not a drone. There are uses of drones for various domestic purposes that are legitimate. But I think it's also important not to say, as I think is tempting, well, 
we use helicopters, why are drones any different? You know, they are different and, and uh, much more sensitive, certainly, than a lot of the kind of surveillance vehicles that we are accustomed to seeing deployed domestically. I think it's also interesting that it's actually quite ironic that at a point where the government is classifying more and more information and keeping it away from, you know, public purview, is at a time when the government is actually seeking to gain more information from private individuals at this point. I just think it's a very interesting sort of dynamic that we're setting up and we're seeing now. We're going to leave it there. Malou Innocent, a foreign policy analyst at the Cato Institute and Julian Sanders. Sanchez, a research fellow at the Cato Institute. You can read more on these subjects, watch videos, listen to podcasts uh, related to this discussion, which is, of course, ongoing at our website, cato.org. Ron Paul's presidential campaigns have galvanized a mass movement for smaller government, sound money, and an end to our interventionist foreign policy. This genuinely spontaneous movement has featured blimps, money bombs, the Revolution logo, and thousands of college students chanting, End the Fed, at campuses across the country. Ron Paul's steadfast advocacy helped forge the Tea Party movement that made the way for his own son, Kentucky Senator Rand Paul, to get elected. The younger Paul spoke at the Cato Institute in May. This is kind of a young crowd, I think, out there. Anybody ever go see The Grateful Dead? There we go. A couple of people. I figured Brian had probably seen The Grateful Dead. I never got into a concert, but I got to the parking lot one time, and they, they used to hold up the tickets and say, I've got three in Cincinnati for two in Detroit or whatever. I guess they were planning on going to the next concert. And why it reminds me of the Ron Paul revolution in probably many different ways, but because people, I would see people, I saw somebody in Orlando last week, he says, oh, yeah, I met you in, in Iowa in Ankeny at the Ron Paul headquarters. And Brian, I think, was there also in the headquarters. would be 250 young people from all walks of life, from all over the country, all working together in the headquarters. It always struck me that when you go to a Ron Paul rally, it wasn't everybody in suits and ties. It wasn't the Chamber of Commerce. You might see somebody with a tattoo. You might see somebody with a Grateful Dead t-shirt. But uh, it was different. It was, it was different in a better way, I think. People from all different walks of life were there. And I think he did make the message of freedom popular. You didn't have many candidates get on the stage. You probably haven't had any before, and you may not have any since, who, who when asked about the war and asked about how to end it, said, we just marched in, we can just march out. Couldn't be any simpler than that, or any less fearful than to say something like that. You had a guy who would go to the debate in Miami that's a Latin American-sponsored debate and say, we need to end the trade embargo. Castro's been there for 35 years, and he's not going away, and he said that to booze. When he first stood up and talked about blowback, I believe, in the South Carolina primary in 2008, he said that to booze, and he wasn't certain how people would respond. But interestingly, there was a lot of negative response, but there was a whole new positive response of all these new people. And I keep trying to convince the Republican Party, you may not like everything that he's presented, but at least appreciate your, your electorate's getting bigger, your, your party's getting bigger. You need to welcome the Ron Paul people because they're people who maybe have been unhappy with both parties or been libertarians or been Constitution Party or been Independent Party, but they're coming in and you need a bigger party. One thing you may also never hear again in a Republican debate is... Uh, I think he said at one point that it doesn't say, blessed are the war makers. It says, blessed are the peacemakers. And I mean, will you ever hear another presidential candidate say that? I don't know. But that was pretty impressive to me. 
There is a, a continual battle, though, and the battle goes on, and there have been some things that we continue to fight. When we fought the Patriot Act this year, we got more no votes than we ever got before. I don't think it was 28, 30 votes, but that's still a growing movement of people who are concerned about the Fourth Amendment. And I said over and over to people, both in my campaign as well as when I've gotten here, is that you have to believe in all of the Bill of Rights. You know, so many conservatives love the Second Amendment. There are Second Amendment rallies. There are Second Amendment groups. There's not enough Fourth Amendment rallies and enough Fourth Amendment groups. But you can't have the Second Amendment if you don't believe in the First Amendment. You can't have the Second Amendment if you don't believe in the Fourth Amendment. So I think that there is a growing movement. I think there's a movement within the Republican caucus that I have lunch with every day that's becoming more libertarian. There are people that are no longer afraid of it. I say that term conservative got kind of used up by people who weren't conservative. So we had a conservative president who doubled the debt with a Republican Congress. It's obviously worse now, but it was going in the wrong direction under a Republican administration. So the term conservative became of less value and the term libertarian, I think, became of more value. We're still having the fights. We had the fight on the Defense Authorization Act. We didn't win, but we, we got close to some victories. One amendment Dianne Feinstein introduced was to say that citizens would not be able to be held indefinitely or sent from the United States to Guantanamo Bay. At one point in time, she actually was going to withdraw the amendment. Mike Lee and I sat there and said no. Once an amendment's introduced, they have to have unanimous consent to pull it back, and we said no, and that's pretty unusual. Usually if an author wants to pull an amendment, you just let them out of courtesy. We said no, we've got it out there and we've got to vote, and we still almost won, but they introduced a watered-down version of it, and so we lost 55-45. But 45 people at least believe you shouldn't send a U.S. citizen from here to Guantanamo Bay. Interestingly, about two hours later, we had another vote, and they were voice voting everything. About 9 o'clock, every Senate starts thinking they need to go get on back on oxygen or whatever, but it's bedtime. <laughs> and uh, so it's about 9 o'clock, and they're voice voting everything. And a vote comes up that I've been watching, and this amendment said that if you're found innocent in an Article Three court in the United States of being accused of terrorism and found innocent, that you could still be sent indefinitely to Guantanamo Bay. Not that you just wouldn't get a jury trial. You could have a jury trial, be found innocent, and still be sent to Guantanamo Bay. They were trying to convince me. Both uh, the Democrat leader was Levin, the Republican leader was McCain. They both told me they didn't really like it. But sort of it's like, just get along with everybody. Let it go through, and we'll pull it out in the conference committee. And I you know, and I was like, well, should I? And I looked back at my staff, and they were like pointing back to go. And I went back, and I said, we've got to have the vote. And so all you got to do is raise your hand. I asked for a voice vote. And on that voice vote, it's the first time I was really actually surprised. And so were they, because Carl Levin was with me. Actually, John McCain voted with me. 51 Democrats voted no on this, and nine, eight or nine Republicans. I think we got 59 votes, and we stopped something that is horrendous. And Carl Levin even said to me, but it's the law. And I said, if it's the law, it's awful that you could be found innocent in our country and kept in prison forever. That's the law. If that's the law, that's awful. And for goodness sake, we ought to at least have a recorded vote. And we did and we won. I think the attitudes of people are changing. I think within our caucus, I see some change. The Ron Paul revolution is having an effect, even on people who are already up here. People who would have always said they were conservative are now sometimes saying they're libertarian. In our caucus, we debate, and some are actually lamenting that some of us aren't so gung-ho to put boots on the ground everywhere. Some of us aren't so gung-ho to go to war without a declaration of war, or at the very least, a vote in Congress. 
We still don't have enough, but when I introduced the president's words, President Obama in 2007 said, no president should unilaterally go to war without the authority of Congress. Sounds pretty basic. It's basically what the Constitution says. I introduced his exact words to see how people would vote, and we got a vote. We got 10 votes for his words, 10 Republicans. <laughs> Not one Democrat voted that, uh, saying that uh, Congress should have anything to do. Recently, there was a committee hearing, and Panetta was there. And they asked Panetta, they said, you know, what about going to a war with Syria or Iran or both of them? And he said, well, if we do, we'll get permission from the United Nations. And they said, and he said, well, uh, we will consult with NATO. And they said, and they said, well, we'll probably inform Congress what we're doing. We might. But there was no definite, there was no act that it was going to occur before the action occurred that Congress was very peripheral. That's our own fault. And it's the biggest problem we have up here is not only are we peripheral as far as being almost of no value and not engaged at all in foreign policy, we're the same with regulatory policy or any policy. The unelected bureaucracy runs this place, and in foreign policy, the executive runs this place. And no one attempts to assert themselves. I think that's the biggest challenge we have. I think the Ron Paul revolution is helping us go the right direction. I think Brian's book will be a great value to popularize this. And I hope the Ron Paul revolution becomes a bestseller. Like international trade, cross-border direct investment drives economic growth. The value of cross-border investment flows has increased dramatically worldwide in response to liberalization of investment rules over the past couple of decades. But the trend toward liberalization has slowed, even reversed in recent years. James Bacchus is a former chairman of the WTO appellate body. He spoke at the Cato Institute about the implications of cross-border direct investment in May. I am uh, very much in favor of free trade. This means I'm in favor of both exports and imports. You see why I'm not running for office again? <laughs> I'm also very much in favor of free investment. This means I'm in favor of both outbound investment and inbound investment. Ditto on the office seeking. I'm also very much opposed to protectionism in, in both trade and investment. Certainly, protectionism hinders business, and I work closely with many businesses all over the world. And it's right for businesses to be concerned about profits and jobs and the futures of their employees, their workers, their shareholders. All that is perfectly justified. And I work against protectionism for those reasons. But there are transcending reasons why we should be concerned about protectionism in all its guises, including investment protectionism. The reason is this. Free trade and free investment multiply our opportunities for freedom worldwide. Trade and investment don't create freedom, but they create opportunities for millions upon millions of more people to have more say in their own lives, to be able to make more personal choices about how they wish to live. And that's how I define freedom. Those are the stakes. So if we ask, why should we be concerned about investment protectionism, that's the reason, because it shrinks our chances for freedom here in America and everywhere around the world. 
This is why it's important that we care that investment protectionism is rising. And this is why we need to pay as much attention to investment policy as we pay to trade policy. My own prediction as someone who has judged more international trade disputes than I can remember is that we're going to see far more international investment disputes in the future than we'll see trade disputes. And believe me, we'll see plenty of trade disputes. And one of the challenges we face is that we don't have the rules in place or the system in place to deal with investment disputes that we have already in place to deal with trade disputes through the WTO. Ten years ago, only 2% of the investment measures that were being applied newly by countries around the world were restrictions on investment. Today, 32% of the new investment measures that are being applied worldwide are restrictions on investment. They are deliberalizing. And it's not what you think. It's not just all those developing countries restricting our investments overseas. Most of these new measures restricting investment are being applied by developed countries, by the United States, Europe, and other developed countries. Also, we no longer live in the stereotypical north-south world in which we lived years ago, or at least thought we lived, in terms of investment. We now live in a world in which developing countries and transitional countries are major players in international investment. 52% of all of uh, the uh, inbound investment is coming into developing countries nowadays. Furthermore, developing countries are major players increasingly in making investments overseas themselves. Outbound investment by developing and transitional countries increased 21% last year. What this means is that there is an emerging convergence between developed and developing countries alike in the need to do something more to protect investors and investments worldwide. And this creates an opportunity for more of the rules we need in order to protect investment and in order to prevent the loss of the freedom that can come from more investment throughout the world. This is why the International Chamber of Commerce and its national committee, the United States Council for International Business, have focused recently on trying to revise the ICC's guidelines for international investment. These, of course, are guidelines. They're not rules. They're principles. They're not binding on anyone. But these ICC guidelines through the decades, dating back to just after World War II, have set out the basic fundamental principles that have served as the checklist for countries as they have negotiated all kinds of international investment agreements. And these guidelines establish the basic principles that Josh set out earlier that have animated the United States in its negotiations and the Europeans in their negotiations and other countries as well. They have long served in that role. Yet these guidelines were last revised 40 years ago. We have now completed an effort to revise them for the first time in four decades. We did so through a global effort that included thousands upon thousands of internationally minded companies in the 120 national committees of the International Chamber of Commerce. From that effort, collecting their views, soliciting their ideas, building a consensus on what kind of an agreement they have about what the international business community would like to see, 
we have now revised these guidelines and brought them into the 21st century. This year, the federal government will spend more than $668 billion on at least 126 different programs to fight poverty. Welfare spending by state and local governments adds an additional $284 billion. Clearly, we are doing something wrong, as the poverty rate is now at the highest level in nearly a decade. Cato Institute senior fellow Michael Tanner discussed his new paper, The American Welfare State, How We Spend Nearly a Trillion Dollars a Year Fighting Poverty in Fail, at a Capitol Hill briefing in May. You know, when we talk a lot about welfare spending in this country, I think people underestimate the amount that goes on because they tend to think of welfare as being TANF, what used to be AFDC, Aid for Dependent Children, now is Temporary Assistance for Needy Families. It's the cash grant that people get in terms of welfare, and we think of that, that's what welfare is. The reality, however, is that the federal government alone currently operates 126 different federal welfare programs. In total, on all of these programs combined, the federal government this year will spend $668 billion on those programs. In addition to that, state and local governments also spend money on welfare programs. In some, it's matching funds on TANF and Medicaid and other things where they actually match federal spending or put in their own share of federal spending. And in some cases, they operate these programs entirely on their own. They can spend another $284 billion on those programs, meaning that altogether on anti-poverty programs this year, we will spend $952 billion or just short of $1 trillion on fighting poverty. And we've been spending close to that level for some time, the net result of which is that poverty is actually increasing over the last several years in this country. Now, if you're spending a trillion dollars a year and to reduce poverty, and poverty is going up, it does suggest that maybe you're doing something wrong somewhere along the way. And you can see the, how much welfare spending has actually been increasing in the last several years. Uh, at the end of the uh, Bush administration, we were spending $475 billion at the federal level. Now it's $668 billion. So there's been a significant increase in welfare spending during the Obama administration, about a 41% increase, as a matter of fact, at the federal level. Now, some of that is contracyclical. Some of that is simply the fact that we've been in a recession, high unemployment. These programs, some of them automatically kick in during that time period when you have high unemployment or poverty growing. So some of it is just contracyclical spending. Some of it is health care spending. Uh, health care costs have been rising. A number of these are health care programs, so you can't really blame the Obama administration for that. But some of these are deliberate policy decisions. There's been uh, policy decisions by the administration, for example, to make food stamp eligibility easier to increase uh, eligibility at the state level for food stamps. There's been a, a change in the incentives under the welfare reform to make it easier for states to increase their welfare roles. Some of the, so there's been some deliberate policy decisions that have figured into this increase in spending as well. But there's no doubt that we're spending a lot more money on welfare in the last three years. Over the same period of time, poverty rates have increased. In fact, we're actually spending 
I think this is fascinating. We're actually spending about $20,610 per poor man, woman, and child in this country. So for every poor person in this country, we spend about $20,000 uh, fighting poverty. Now, given that the federal poverty level is about $11,000, and we're spending over $20,000 on that poor person, we should theoretically have no poverty in this country. If we were actually spending this money right, I mean, we'd be better off simply writing every poor person in America a check for $11,000 and theoretically wipe out poverty and save ourselves $9,000 along the way per person. So again, the suggestion is that somewhere along the way you have to be doing something wrong if you're spending almost twice as much as would be necessary to eliminate poverty, and yet you still have poor people. In fact, you have more poor people than ever before. The Tea Party movement hungers for more information about our Constitution and the ideas that animated our founders. And that's a very good thing. Author Elizabeth Price Foley's new book, The Tea Party, Three Principles, explores what animates the Tea Partiers. She discussed her book and her own intellectual evolution at the Cato Institute in May. I consider myself to be a recovering liberal. Because uh, like most people who are well-educated, you know, I graduated from a top-tier university. I had a degree in history. I thought I knew a lot of stuff. And I thought I especially knew a lot of stuff about government. I was sort of a political wonk. You know, I worked for Ted Kennedy in his 1980 campaign for president. I know there's a gasp in the room probably. You know, I liked him so much. You know, I met him once and made him sign a photograph, you know, of him. And I put it on my wall. And when I graduated from college, the first thing I wanted to do was move to Washington, D.C. and work on the Hill. So that's what I did. I came to Washington, D.C. at the tender age of 21, and I proceeded somehow miraculously to get a job advising a congressman at the age of 21. I mean, first of all, you know something's messed up when that can happen. And I worked for a congressman from Texas. His name was Mike Andrews. He represented the 25th District of Texas, which encompasses Houston and the uh, Texas Medical Center. And I became his health policy advisor. I'll never forget the first day when uh, his administrative aide came in, chief of staff essentially, and said, do you know anything about health care? And I said, no. And he said, well, read this. And he dumped you know, a stack of files as thick on my desk. He said, read them. And I did. And, uh, and I began advising congressmen about health care policy, and he was on the Ways and Means Committee, too, which has a big jurisdiction over health care. So I learned very fast, and after a little while, I decided I wanted to make a little bit more money, and I went out and lobbied for a big health maintenance organization, which was quite liberal at the time because the Democrats were their friends. And then I decided that was really boring. I wanted to go back to the Hill. So I went and worked for a guy named Ron Wyden, who was a Democrat from Oregon, and uh, I advised him about health care policy for a couple years. To, and then I decided... I want to go to law school because everybody I knew and worked with was a lawyer and I was writing bills all day. I was spending all my days in legislative counsel's office because Ron Wyden was a very active legislator in the healthcare realm and I didn't think I knew what I was doing very well and certainly during my tenure on the Hill nobody ever shared with me the news flash that Congress has limited and enumerated powers only and that it doesn't have the power to do any darn thing it wants to do. I thought it did. And I think that's typical. I think Americans are woefully, inadequately educated about their own constitution. And I didn't even know about my own ignorance until I went to law school. 
And so I went to law school and I sat in a class with a liberal constitutional law professor. And we read a casebook. For those of you who are lawyers, you know exactly what casebooks are. The big, thick books, they're just Supreme Court case, Supreme Court case, Supreme Court case. You never read original materials in law school, God forbid. You don't have time to read original materials in law school. But because I was getting little snippets of constitutional text, it was an appendix in the back of my book, by the way. The Constitution was an appendix. It still today is an appendix in the back of the book. You get little snippets of constitutional language by reading the cases, and you think to yourself, wait a second, you know, what the Supreme Court's deciding doesn't seem to match up to that text. There's something wrong here. So I wanted to know, what, what is that? What am I missing? What, what are they not telling me? So being sort of the geek that I was, I decided to do a lot of extra reading that wasn't assigned. So I went out and I read the Federalist Papers for the first time in my life. I'd read little pieces of them in undergraduate, but never from cover to cover. I read the whole thing. I was fascinated by it. And then I discovered there was a thing called the Anti-Federalist Papers. And you really can't understand the Federalist Papers until you read the Anti-Federalist Papers. So I read those. There's multiple volumes on that, turns out. And then I started reading the you know, notes of the ratifying conventions and the notes from that fateful summer in 1787 in, in Philadelphia. And all of these things that I had not been made aware of through my educational process. And I have to say, it changed me. It was eye-opening. Once you know that, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. It changes your way of looking at the Constitution and what's going on in modern issues. So, so there's a crisis of ignorance, and I wish I could teach the world. Now that I'm a law professor, I'm convinced the reason why I became a law professor is because I want to teach the world about what they're missing. Smart people are missing this. All right, so... I give a lot of talks as a law professor, and sometime in the fall of 2009, I went home and I told my husband, another one of those people came up to me with a pocket constitution. I had never seen that before in my life. In fact, nobody I know cares about pocket constitutions or has one, except for law students, because I make my law students have them. And here were these ordinary people. I was like talking to Rotarians, Chamber of Commerce types, Gray Panthers groups, the type of talks that you give when you're a constitutional law professor. And people were coming up to me with these, you know, pocket constitutions. And they would sort of very sheepishly pull them out of their pockets and they would be highlighted and underlined. And I was just blown away by this. You know, the geek inside me came out and said, whoa, who are these people? I wanted to know more. I couldn't figure out why all of a sudden that was happening. It took me a little while, a few months, to say, you know what? I think these are Tea Partiers. Because I had the same impression of the Tea Party that you probably had, because the mainstream media was only portraying them in a certain way. They were portraying them as, you know, xenophobic, racist, angry white guys. And they were angry not because of any policies of the president, they were angry because the president was black. Right? And I bought into that. I actually believed that portrait because I didn't see any other portrait of them. But meeting the Tea Partiers and figuring out who they were changed my mind. And I tell you, it's too common that people who continue to adhere to this caricature have never been to a Tea Party event. Or they've watched some rally from afar and looked at the thousands of signs that people are toting, and they pick out the ones that they want to pick out that may say something crazy or have a crazy picture on it. They say, aha, that confirms my stereotype. That's who the Tea Party really is. 
It's not who they are. As part of the research for writing this book, I have attended Tea Party groups, large and small, all across this country, and I can tell you it's not who they are. Fearing good policy in a harsh political climate may be a mistake. That from New Jersey Governor Chris Christie at the Cato Institute's Milton Friedman Prize for Advancing Liberty Dinner held in May. Christie discussed the important role of bipartisanship in achieving good policy for his home state. You know, remember Barack Obama talking about the lack of hope and optimism around the country in 2008. And the environment I found myself in 2009 was not significantly different, although he and I defined the solutions to that problem in entirely different ways. When I first took office in January of 2010 in New Jersey, optimism was a hard thing to find, and for very good reason. In the eight years before I became governor, our state raised taxes and fees at the state level 115 times in eight years. In case you were eating something, let me repeat that. Taxes and fees 115 times increased in eight years. In the decade before I became governor, from 2000 to 2009, New Jersey had zero private sector job growth. Literally zero. It was a zero job growth decade in New Jersey. In the years before I became governor, $70 billion in wealth left New Jersey in four years. In the four years before I became governor, not diminished wealth, departed wealth. $70 billion in departed wealth. Our unemployment rate was over 10%, with 155,000 private sector jobs lost in the four years of my predecessor, John Corzine. You know, you always wonder when you read a speech, what will be the laugh line? <laughs> to my staff, mark that down. That was it. <laughs> the highest tax burden in the country with the worst climate for small business and a bloated state government with the highest number of government workers per square mile in the country. Yeah, you can laugh unless you live there. <laughs> so when I came to office in those last few weeks of January of 2010, you would think that given the hand I was already dealt it, the news couldn't get worse. And you would be wrong. In my second week as governor, my chief of staff and my state treasurer came into my office and said that if we did not cut $2.2 billion in spending in the next five weeks, New Jersey would not be able to meet payroll for the second pay period in March. Imagine that. 60% of the fiscal year was already gone. 60% of the money was already out the door. We had a $29 billion budget where we had to find $2.2 billion, not in cuts to projected growth or any of that. <laughs> but money... See, so when people say, he has no self-control, you can say, no, no, I saw him, he does.
We had to find 2.2 billion in cuts for money that had already been appropriated. We essentially had to impound the money back from the departments who it had already been appropriated to. And all this just, not so that we could meet some lofty goals of cutting taxes, this was just so we could be payroll for the second pay period in March in what is the second wealthiest state per capita in America. If you need any greater example of what happens to an economy when a state government overtaxes, overspends, overborrows, and overregulates, just visit New Jersey in January of 2010. So now I had two choices when confronted with this meeting. I could sit down and negotiate with the Democratic leadership and the democratically controlled legislature to try to come to an agreement on these cuts, or thanks to New Jersey's unique constitutional structure, cut spending through executive order. Now, for those of you who have watched me over the last two and a half years, if you believe I chose the former, <laughs> then it is now time for you to leave. You are not smart enough to be here at the Milton Friedman dinner. So we went with the second choice. We literally sat in a room over the course of three weeks and went over all 2,400 line items in the New Jersey state budget that I inherited. The result was finding and cutting $2.2 billion. I made clear that we weren't kidding around, that we meant to radically change the way government in New Jersey was gonna operate. Because what we're doing is once again creating a sense of optimism in our state. For the first time in 10 years, a majority of New Jerseyans recently polled believe the state is back on the right track. <laughs> to give you some perspective, on election day, 2009, the percentage of New Jerseyans who believed the state was on the right track was 19%. Today, that number is 53%. So when you see these numbers in New Jersey, and I tell you all the things that we've done, don't tell me the American people are not ready to hear the truth. They know our government's out of control. They know our debt and our deficit are out of control. And none of them, don't confuse them liking the solution with accepting it. They don't have to like it. But they know in their heart they have to accept it. And the only thing that the American people care more about than today is tomorrow. Because tomorrow's about our children and our grandchildren. Today's just about us. So let's be clear. We identified problems. We proposed specific means to fix them. We educated the public on the direct consequences of inaction. And then we compromised on a bipartisan basis to get results. Bottom line is we took action. We did it with solid principles and with strong leadership. Now, this is the only way that you can accomplish these things, is through the executive taking the risk and encouraging everyone else to come along with us when they know it's the right thing to do. So where are we today? Well, we're now in a situation where we're not dealing with multi-billion dollar budget deficits anymore. Instead, this year, I was also able to propose a budget with the first income tax cut for New Jerseyans in over 15 years. A 
across the board tax cut that will give New Jerseyans over $9 billion in relief over the next decade. And here's the amazing thing. You would expect Democrats would be fighting me on it. But instead, the majority of Democrats in New Jersey are now saying, yes, we have to cut taxes. They're just arguing with me about the best way to do it. That proves strong, principled leadership can fundamentally change the discussion in a state or in our country and can even change the mindset in a place like New Jersey. When you have Democrats agreeing with me that it's time to cut taxes after a decade of raising them, then it's official. We have turned Trenton upside down. In New Jersey, we've done this because we put our state's interests ahead of partisan interests. And we've made friends with our Democratic colleagues who are willing to view these things not in a partisan way, but in a common sense way. And so that's why our reforms in pension and benefit are going to save $132 billion for taxpayers over the next 30 years. And also, secure those pensions for the people who are counting on them, our police officers, our firefighters, our teachers, who are counting on those pensions for their financial future. And all of it just, I think, teaches us that leadership matters. It counts. These accomplishments set a tone that has taken hold across many other states. Look at the accomplishments that are happening being led by Republican governors in many other states. The attitude's got to be when there's a problem, you fix it. That's the job you've been sent to do. You can't wait for someone else to do it. And when you do your job, you have to tell your citizens the truth. Tell them the truth about the depth of the challenge. Tell them the truth about the difficulty of solutions. Treat them like adults. In, in the difficult times that America is in now, this is the only way to govern. When we fail to do this, we pay the price as a country many times over. The domestic price is obvious. Growth slows, high levels of unemployment persist, and we make ourselves even more vulnerable to the unpredictable behavior of rightfully skittish markets or the political decisions of our lenders. But there's also a foreign policy price to pay. To begin with, we diminish our ability to influence the thinking and ultimately the behavior of others. There's no better way to persuade other societies around the world to become more democratic and more market-oriented than to show that our democracy and our markets work better than any other system. We need to care about this because we believe that democracy is the best protector of human dignity, liberty, and freedom. And we know this because history shows that mature democracies are less likely to resort to force against their own people or their neighbors. We need to care because we believe in free and open trade. As exports are the best creators of high-paying jobs, and imports are a means to increase consumer choice. We have to care because all around the world, in the Middle East, in Asia, in Africa, in Latin America, people are debating their own political and economic futures right now. They're looking for inspiration right now. We have a stake in the outcome of their debates. Middle East that could become largely democratic and at peace will be a Middle East that accepts Israel, that rejects terrorism, and becomes a dependable source of energy for the entire world. And there's no better way to reinforce the likelihood that others in the world will opt for more open societies and market-based economies 
than to demonstrate that our own system is working well. At one time in our history, our greatness was a reflection of our country's innovation, our determination, our ingenuity, and the strength of our democratic institutions. When there was a crisis in the world, America found a way to come together to help our allies and to fight our enemies. When there's a crisis at home, we put aside parochialism and put the greater public interest first. And in our system, we did it through strong leadership by strong leaders. Unfortunately, now, our own domestic political conduct has failed to live up to this tradition of exceptionalism. Today, our role and our ability to affect change has been diminished because of our own problems and our own inability and unwillingness to effectively deal with them. Now, I understand full well that succeeding at home, setting an example is not enough, but it's a start. The United States will only be able to sustain a leadership position around the world if the resources are there in our society to produce a society that others want to emulate. Without the authority that comes from exceptionalism, earned, earned American exceptionalism, we cannot do good for other countries, we cannot continue to be a beacon of hope for the world to aspire to, we cannot produce future generations who believe in their heart that this is the best way to govern a people. I realize that what I'm calling for requires a lot of our elected officials and a lot of our people, and I plead guilty to that. But I also plead guilty to being an optimist. So I believe in what this country and its citizens can accomplish if they understand what's being asked of them and how we will all ultimately benefit if the challenge is met. I believe it's possible to have leadership that understands that what's happening in New Jersey is not just because our ideas are right, and by the way, they are. You know, I tell my staff all the time after we've had a big victory, and I gather them together in my office, and fortunately for us, we've had plenty of them. I tell them all the time, remember, the first reason and the most important reason we won is because we are right. There's no substitute for that. But there's something else. This is a human business. And especially in this town, we've forgotten that. In New Jersey, day after day after day, I spent time sitting with colleagues on both sides of the aisle, convincing them of the goodness of my spirit and my intentions, and letting them know that I don't believe that compromise is a dirty word. See, because the way I see it is this. There is always a boulevard between compromising your principles and get everything that you want. You have to be willing to say no to things that are at fundamental odds with your principles. You should never compromise your principles. But you also need to understand, especially in a place like New Jersey and now Washington, where there's divided government, you're also not going to get everything you want. Sometimes that boulevard is narrower, sometimes it's broader, but it is always there in my experience. And the job of a leader is to find your way onto that boulevard without driving into the ditch of compromising your principles. It can be done. And leaders have an obligation to make those tough choices. In New Jersey, this is what we're trying to do. 
and in the process, hopefully setting an example for the rest of the country. And believe me, if you could do this in New Jersey, uh, you can do it anywhere. I won't hear excuses from anybody. We have 700,000 more Democrats than Republicans. We hadn't elected a Republican statewide in 12 years before my election. We are coming up on our 40th anniversary of electing a Republican to the United States Senate. 1972 was the last time New Jersey sent a Republican to the United States Senate. So I don't want to hear any other state crying that their state's so hard, we can't do this. Come to New Jersey, man, and be a Republican. Then you'll know hard. But it can be done. It can be done. That's where my optimism comes from, both for my state and for our country. Because it's not about having everyone agree with you all the time. I can guarantee you. The people in New Jersey don't always agree with everything I do, and they most certainly don't always agree with the way I say it. But they know I'm telling them the truth as I see it. See, I'm not looking to be loved. I think politicians get themselves in trouble when they're looking to be loved. I get plenty of love at home. I'm not bragging, I just do. I got a great wife and four great children, and I'm not looking for the people in New Jersey to love me. Because when you're looking for love in this job, that's when deficits get run up. When you're looking for love in this job, it's because you can't say no to anything, because someone somewhere won't love you if you do it. That's why leaders balk at making uncomfortable decisions, because they think that I won't be loved. My mother told me something a long time ago. She said to me, Christopher, if you have a choice between being loved and being respected, always take being respected. Because if you're truly respected, True love can come, but love without respect is always fleeting. Now, of course, she's talking about women. <laughs> but I do think that this applies equally to politics. If you get people to respect you, if you make them understand that you're willing to say no, but you're also always willing to listen, that you're willing to stand hard on principles, the principles that you've articulated to the public in a campaign, the principles that you've been elected on, and the principles you believe in, but that you're also willing to compromise when those principles won't be violated, then respect will come. And in New Jersey, I think respect is coming for us because even those who don't agree with me know that when I look them in the eye and tell them I'm gonna do something, I'm gonna do it, regardless of the perceived political cost. And if I tell them no, they know. No means no. New York Magazine did a profile on me recently. Always a risky thing for a Republican. The headline of the story was, the answer is no. My staff blew this up. Every one of them, my senior staff, and they've taped it to the back of their doors in their offices. So when the lobbyists and the special interests come in to see them and they close the door and they start to ask for something, they say, turn around. That's from the boss. The answer is no. It's about being consistent. 
It's about leading by example. It's about not putting your finger up in the wind and trying to figure out which way the wind's blowing. It's about standing for the things that we believe in, which is that liberty and freedom and the human spirit are the most powerful things in the world. And being willing to stand up to those who give you the pat and easy answers that come from those who believe that government is the answer to every solution is what we need to do now more than ever in our country. We need to be strong enough and tough enough to do what needs to be done and to just tell it like it is. There's no need for varnish anymore, everybody. In fact, I don't think we have the luxury to put it on. We need to say it directly to the American people. They need to hear it. And I would suggest to you they're ready. They're ready to hear it. And if we meet that challenge, like I know we can, we will allow the United States to once again export hope and liberty and freedom around the world, not just by saying it, but by living it each and every day. So I want to thank the members of the Cato Institute for setting an example for why liberty and freedom are so important to the future greatness of America. And I left all that's exciting in New Jersey tonight to come here, as I told you, because I believe in what you believe in. But please never forget, never forget that it's not gonna come without a fight. And if you're willing to stand up and fight with me, I'm willing to stand and fight with you for those principles that we believe in and hold dear and have built this country. We need to get fighting hard, even harder than we are now, because the stakes are too great to do anything less. So we're gonna to continue to fight the good fight in New Jersey. We hope that it will inspire more people to fight around, all around the country. And then when we talk about American exceptionalism, we can really feel it because we haven't just had it as a part of our past. We're acting to make it a bedrock of our future. What could be better than a free ebook? How about a lot of free ebooks from the Cato Institute? Cato has reached deep into its backlist and is offering free ebook editions in PDF format only of many of the exceptional Cato published works from the past several decades. The nearly 60 books can be found on the free ebooks section of Cato.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.